The students we had in the class, we had about 20. When Gaza happened, and we had a discussion about what's happening in Gaza in the class between them, they were amazing. We, both of us, were very moved by the degree of maturity with which they handled this terrible uh, development. And I think that, that is uh, the refreshing part. That is what makes me keep faith in, you know, the utility of teaching. Yeah. You know, I just, I've said this so often in Isidine's earshot, he must be sick of hearing me say it, but he and I did not ourselves agree on all kinds of issues, the relevance of this fact, the relevance of that, you know, that leader, etc. But what we did share was a profound sense of tragedy and conveyed to the students that this is a tragic conflict. And we both spoke before about our liberal commitments. I think it's important that the students understood that a sense of tragedy presumes the limitations of human beings. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dom. Happy New Year. This is the official start of the 2024 Unspeakable season. And before I introduce my guests, Bernard Abishai and Isadine Fischier, whose voices you've just heard, I have some quick announcements. First, I have announced more retreats for the Unspeakeasy this year. That is my heterodox women's community, if you don't know already. We will be in Austin, Louisville, Kentucky, Los Angeles, Seattle, Toronto, and Woodstock, New York this year. Additionally, if you are a member of the online community, we'll be doing community retreats that are just for you guys. And speaking of guys, I am working on a possible co-ed retreat. So bear with me there. But in the meantime, if you are a non-guy and you want to get in on this, go to theunspeakeasy.com and get on the mailing list and learn all about it. Secondly, I want to tell you that after three and a half years of doing this podcast for free, releasing every episode for free, I'm going to do things a little differently. I'm going to still give you as much free content as I can. But generally speaking, if you want to hear the whole interview, you're going to need to become a paying subscriber. If you're hearing the sound of my voice right now, that means you are not yet a paying subscriber. These interviews are long, so that often means that you'll still get like an hour for free often. But if you want to get the full experience, I'm going to need you to pony up so I can keep doing this thing. And there are lots of perks for joining. You get to read stuff I wrote. There's a great listener community. You can leave comments, all that kind of thing. So you're going to go to megandom.substack.com and become a paying subscriber for just $7 a month. Okay. This is another conversation about Israel-Gaza, and it's quite different from ones I've had previously. My guests are Bernard Abishai, a journalist and author who has been writing about Israel since the early 1970s and now lives in Israel, at least a lot of the time, and Isidine Fischier, an Egyptian writer and academic who worked in diplomacy in Egypt for many years. Their careers led them in many directions and ultimately to Dartmouth College, 
where since 2021, they've been teaching a course together called The Politics of Israel and Palestine. I don't need to remind you that campuses have become sharply divided in the wake of the October 7th attacks by Hamas, and obviously those divisions have intensified in the face of full-blown war. And Dartmouth has become an example of a campus that's really managed to balance emotional response with, uh, let's just say, intellectual humility. And this particular class has become a symbol of that balance. I'm really lucky that Bernard, who goes by Bernie, and Isidine took time out to talk with me about their work, about their approaches to teaching, about the professional paths that led them to teaching, and how the combination of their own differing viewpoints and their friendship allows them to lead by example. They were featured in a 60 Minutes episode, which aired last month, and so if you happen to catch that and wanted to hear more, uh, you are in luck, because this is a podcast, not an episode of 60 Minutes. We have more than 60 Minutes, and we talk for a lot longer than that. Again, this conversation in its entirety is a little over an hour and a half. Since you are not yet a paying subscriber, you are going to want to hear the rest. In the meantime, you're going to hear the first hour, but to hear the rest, you want to go to megandom.substack.com and support us. That will give you premium access every week, so you can do that now. Otherwise, enjoy the first hour of my conversation with Bernard Abishai and Isidine Vishier. Bernard Abishai and Isidine Fischier, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you. Thank you. You've been teaching a course together at Dartmouth, uh, the politics of Israel and Palestine, for two years, I think. I want to talk with you about what goes on in that class, uh, who your students are, why you began teaching it. But first, I want to talk with you about some of your recent media um, it's part of the reason I, I have you on, and I think that um, you've been doing more uh, speaking publicly about this class. But let's just start here. You recorded an event on October 12th at Dartmouth College. This was a panel you were on. You were featured on a 60 Minutes uh, segment on December 3rd. That seems like a long time ago now. Yeah. The situation has escalated in Gaza. The death toll has been reported at around 22,000. I don't know how trustworthy those numbers are, but give or take. We're recording this now on January 2nd. If you could roll the calendar back to October 12th, when the crowd was sitting there very nicely listening and asking questions, would you have been surprised by what we've seen since, both on campuses and on the city streets, in the in the public square? Either of you can can start. You can take your pick with who wants to take that on first. Well, I don't think we would have been surprised, Isidine. I hope you agree. I, I think we actually decided to teach the course together because we expected polarization on the campus in May of 2021, right? Remember that lunch we had? Maybe you want to describe it. Because I, I was not on campus when that first statement came out. I had just come back from Jerusalem. But you were on campus. So why don't you describe that scene? Yeah, that's, it's, an, it's an older episode, obviously. Uh, two years ago, there was, sadly, another round of conflict between Hamas and Israel um, over Gaza. 
And as a result, as usually the case, there were um, many civilian casualties and some of our colleagues issued a statement that stirred strong reactions from people who identify more closely with Israel. And they viewed the statement as one-sided and unfair. And there was a lot of kind of uh, a desire to respond, maybe with another statement. And I was very worried by this uh, development because campus, uh, Dartmouth campus has been exceptionally peaceful and civil when it comes to Israel-Palestine. And I thought that civility is a lot more important than issuing a bunch of statements by a bunch of faculty, which, to be honest, is not the primary job of faculty in my book. So I was thinking, you know, other than issuing another, like a corrective statement and then getting into this war of statements and narratives, then what is the best way to to contain this, to prevent that slide into polarization? And then I had lunch with Bernie and I shared my concern with him. And I kind of ran a couple of ideas by him, you know, shall we write a, a joint op-ed? And he was like, yeah, yeah, what's an op-ed going to do about that? And he's like, why don't we teach the course that both of us were teaching separately already? Right. Why don't we teach together? Right. And he immediately was just like, yes, let's do that. 2021 was, um, was actually a pretty difficult time. The war did not escalate to where it is now, but it was a kind of dress rehearsal. So we were, we were, I think, quite committed to doing this. So by the time this war started, we had already established rapport. Well, we were friends before. The rapport was not so much a personal issue. The rapport became academic rapport in class. And that, I think it meant a lot to the campus to have us both experienced enough to have created this dialogue together so that when it went public after October 7, we already knew how to talk about this with one another publicly. Okay. I want to know sort of how two nice gentlemen like you uh, from the Middle East or with ties to the Middle East ended up at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. Uh, what Can you talk just individually about what was your background with respect to academia, with teaching? How long had you been talking about this kind of stuff with students and others? Isidine, I know your background is in, is in diplomacy. You are um, from Egypt originally. So how did you wind up in New England there at Dartmouth? <laughs> Well, I, I had, uh, I always, my career always had like a, a double hats or two hats. I, I did my PhD, um, ironically in Montreal where, um, Bernie grew up. I did this, uh, while I was a diplomat. So I was going back and forth between the two. In my diplomatic work, I, uh, served in Israel. I worked at the uh, Egyptian embassy in Tel Aviv for a couple of years, and then I worked with the UN Special Coordinator for the Peace Process for another three years in Jerusalem and Gaza. So the diplomatic work was focused on Israel and then broader conflicts in the Middle East, Iraq, Lebanon, and so on. 
But by 2008, I, I had it with diplomacy. I was just sick of it because obviously it was, you know, not going anywhere. And I thought um, I'll go back to my other career, which is the academic. So I moved to the American University. I got a job at the American University in Cairo at the political science department. And I've been teaching since 2008 conflicts in the Middle East, um, politics of Israel-Palestine, Arab-American relations, and so on and so forth. And I did this for eight years. By 2016, the Arab Spring had came and gone, and I was part of it. And as I was just discussing with Bernie the other day, we were talking about freedoms and the limits to freedom, freedom of expression and other freedoms, and whether there are limits or there aren't limits. And in my own experience, in, during the Arab Spring, I was on the side of democracy promotion and democracy transition. But because it ended up bringing Islamists who started to erode the democratic uh, freedoms that we have just gained, I shifted from supporting that de democratic transition to, no, wait, halt, we need to oppose because democracy is not about majority rule. Democracy and freedom of expression is not about hate speech and going after minorities, eroding individual rights and all of these things. So I kind of went to the other side and called for the ousting of that elected president. Anyway, long story, obviously, the short version is uh, the military came back, repression came back, and I, I got invited by Dartmouth to come and teach for a year. And I was like, should I go to New England and it's very cold or stay and go to an Egyptian jail? So ultimately, you know, it's just like Dartmouth is not that bad. You were really facing jail in Egypt? I mean, Egypt? Half, half of my friends and colleagues who were involved in the, in the uprising were in jail and the other half was banned from traveling. And there were, you know, this is not about Egypt, but Egypt has gone into a very dark, repressive phase since 2013-14 with the current president. And if you express any dissent, uh, people were literally thrown in jail for Facebook comments and stuff like this. And I had, there was a campaign on national TV, quote-unquote, which is controlled by the state, um, against me with the usual accusations and so on. So it was, the writing was on the wall, and I was just waiting for the moment where, you know, the other shoe is going to drop. Thankfully, um, New England came in before the other shoe dropped. Wow. Okay. So, Bernie, is your story as dramatic well, as that? <laughs> I wasn't thrown in jail for my liberal views. I was thrown out of the Benebreth Lecture Bureau <laughs> in 1985 <laughs> when I published The Tragedy of Zionism, whose fundamental thesis was that Israel had failed to complete its democratic commitments, largely because it was working within the constraints of a residual Zionist institutional world and an ideological world that acted as a fetter on Israeli democracy. That's what the tragedy of Zionism was all about. And I the message was not uh, gracefully accepted by the American Jewish community, to say the least. But I had been writing about the Middle East conflict from 1972. The first article in the New York Review was in, in the uh, winter of 1973, just after the 
uh, actually the winter of 74, right after the 73 war, and covered every Israeli election since. Uh, and I've been covering Israeli politics. And so when I, I, how did I get to Dartmouth? That's a very circuitous story. I won't uh, give you all the uh, details of it, but I wound up at Dartmouth because I loved New Hampshire. I had been in New Hampshire for summers when I was teaching at MIT and uh, told the uh, then chairman of the politics department, the government department, that I was available after having spent uh, a career in consulting after I left MIT in 1985, largely because of the response to the book. I didn't get tenure there. So I was, I guess I was thrown out of MIT as well. To have an eclectic and interesting career, you have to get fired a lot. And so I went to the Harvard Business Review and uh, discovered myself as a um, technology editor just around the time when computers were coming into businesses. And you know, tripped over the biggest industrial revolutions in steam power, and then went to Israel in uh, several excursions back to Israel in in the early 90s and realized, wow, you know, this country could become a very important hub for technology. And that kind of brought me back into writing about Israel. And uh, one thing led to another. My wife and I split and 97, and I remarried uh, a woman who had been an Israeli uh, professor and joined her. Now I'm six months a year there, six months a year in Jerusalem, where I am right now. And that's been true for 20 years. This is a complicated story, but uh, I got to Dartmouth largely because I loved New Hampshire and just told the chairman of the department, I'm here, use me. And one, you know, and they did. What was your relationship to Israel? Obviously, Izzedine, you are an Egyptian, so that makes sense. Uh, Bernie, you are Canadian or Canadian uh, American. Um, Canadian you were writing- American and Israeli at this point. Okay, right. You were writing about Israel, though, in the early 70s, so you must have been a, a very young man. How did this interest emerge to the point that you became a, an expert so, so early in your career? Well, look, it's hard to explain to people today how cool it was to be a Zionist in 1968. You know, at the time, it felt like, wow, this is this great new Hebrew emancipation. It's this new Israeli culture. If you're a secular Jew in Montreal, you feel like what's awaiting you is a kind of secularized Jewish kitsch if you're not going to be interested in uh, religious life, in Jewish religious law, which by that time I was not, although I was deeply instructed in it in various Jewish day schools and Hebrew summer camps and so on, I was not interested in Jewish religious life. Um, Then 67 war happened, and I remember vividly just showering and breaking down, crying, thinking, oh my God, another Holocaust is going to happen. And I'm going to be here in Montreal and not take part of this was in May of 67. So I went as a volunteer the summer of 67. And uh, by the time I got there, you know, I stayed for the celebration. 
But the Six Day War was pretty quick. And, you know, my country was fighting Isidine's country at the time. And um, I thought, well, you know, this was pretty just. It was a just war, I thought. We didn't have a peace treaty, but we had the next best thing. We had the capacity to intimidate all of our neighbors. So I thought. And uh, the summer of 67, I spent a lot of time on an Israeli farming cooperative and sort of fell in love with a Tolstoyan Israeli farmer who loved the land and loved labor Zionist achievement. And I just fell in love. I fell in love with the country. And so when I tell people I was a Zionist in 68, 69, basically I was saying, I just want to be part of this new modern Hebrew thing and do it with, you know, in the context of this agricultural cooperative that seemed to me utterly just and interesting and used all my faculties. So I went back in 72 and then the war came. And because the war came, I sort of tripped into journalism. I do a lot of tripping, I guess, in my life. You two started teaching the class at Dartmouth in 2021. So what was the climate like at that time? What were students saying to you? What kinds of interventions were you doing or feeling like you had to do in terms of people's outlooks and the way they were expressing themselves? Well, probably the best way to picture this is to think of the types of students you get in this class. You get mainly three types. One is kids who come from Jewish background, Jewish schools, and uh, some relatives in Israel or some experience visits to Israel. And remember, those are very young students. They're 18 and 19. Yeah, these are undergraduates, just in case people aren't clear on that. Yeah. So they come and they are deeply connected to Israel and to the story. But they know that they have one side of the story and they want to understand what the others are saying. And they're afraid also. So it's a, it's a very interesting combination. It's a desire to learn and a fear to learn at the same time. Defensiveness, but also a desire to kind of crawl out from under whatever, you know, the family, the rabbis and all the heritage that the they carry. That's one type. The other type is students from Arab backgrounds. And usually they feel misunderstood already. And they have a story that nobody's paying attention to. And the world is unfair to them. And let's see what this class is. Are they going to tell the truth or are they just going to be the same and so on? And the third type is white kids. And I'm saying white kids in a kind of figurative way. They're the innocent civilians. They are neither, they're not connected to either side. They understand this is an important issue and they're so afraid to offend anybody. (laughs) So they're like tiptoeing around it. They have a lot of questions, a lot of questions, and a lot of things that don't make sense. Why are they fighting over this tiny little thing, right? But they are so just like ducking, waiting to see what the others would say. And I think the beauty of our joint teaching, among maybe other things, is that because they see both of us 
and they see how we can disagree and how we can agree and how we can say things that if how when I say things about the Arab side and the Palestinian side, if Bernie had said it, they would react negatively. How when Bernie says things about Israel, the Jewish communities in Eastern Europe before Zionism, and all if it comes from me, they would be really offended. So it's not so that it, it's like we we confuse them, but at the same time, it gives them a space that is I hate to use that cliche, but it, it is a safe space. They feel it's okay to say, oh. How did the Zionists do this and not think about that? Or to say, why the Palestinians reject that instead of, and so on. And it becomes less important where you come from or what's your background. It becomes more about the questions that we're asking and exploring. And this is generally the atmosphere as I see it. And I think for me, this is learning. This is the right climate that I want to have the students in, in order to allow them to, you know, to question the things that they need to question. Right. And what Isidine calls the white kids, the sort of more neutral kids, the curious kids, very typical Dartmouth students, by the way, there's a kind of self-selection process. You know, kids who come to Dartmouth come to that picturesque part of New Hampshire, they have to have a certain ruggedness, a certain love of nature, and a certain love of a, a very thick campus culture because they're very isolated from the rest of the world there. So they know that they can't piss off people too much because the people they piss off are the people they're going to be seeing later on in the cafeteria. There's, there's, and that's true of faculty, but by the way, also. So there's a kind of well, uh, maybe a little less. Faculty is more daring. A little less so. But, but there, are not, there are no fist fights in the cafeteria among the faculty? Well, the point is that um, the social life and the intellectual life are in some sense one. And so people are accustomed to a kind of tact, which you don't necessarily have to have, say, at Columbia, where, you know, one, one person goes to the Upper East Side, one person goes to the, uh, goes back to, uh, you know, the village and, and never the twain meet. I do think that the fact that there are neutral parties in the room, they create a kind of ballast for what might otherwise be um, more strongly ideological students who are trying to, uh, you know, stay in a defensive crouch. Yeah. I want to talk about Columbia in a bit. That's a, a campus that I'm familiar with. But getting to October 7th and its immediate aftermath now, was there a real sort of tone shift, like where suddenly people not getting along so well, where people's ears not as open as they had been the day before or the week before, sort of what changed following that, that event that day? Emotions. Yeah. There were a lot of raw and strong emotions. And those emotions, as you, they usually do, blocked the other faculties uh, that people had. There was a lot of, there was shock. 
there was a sense of being under attack and there was a lot of anger also and there was very little desire to hear anything other than validation and comforting of those emotions so if you were jewish or israeli and you experience those feelings and then somebody comes to you to talk about quote unquote context and occupation the way you hear it regardless of what the person who said it intended it but the way you hear it is justification or at least dismissal of your crisis which is for you an existential crisis but then they hear it belittling it dismissing it and even blaming it on you in a way right if you were palestinian or arab or identify with this you know anti colonial and all of this crowd and you feel that oh it's like this is you know we're born today like where were you now you're so shocked and where were you oh all those people condemning terrorism where have you been when this and this and that happened when displacement happened when this and so on and so forth so they were also very strong feelings on the other side feeling again you know the world doesn't listen to us they there's no space for us it's all about the israelis and the jewish kind of concerns and pain and our pain is less important our lives are and of course as the situation evolved uh, or this uh, degenerated let's say uh, that became even stronger on the palestinian side now in the face of this the nuance that we are trying to convey becomes very um, difficult and the critical stance that we have bernie and i not only vis-a-vis the others but vis-a-vis our own communities becomes not very likable by our own community you see what i mean they it's, don't like nuance they were that was a threat at the time of this is what polarization is about look at america at the time of polarization people you know it's are you are you repeating what the other side is saying is this what you're doing that's it right wait let me go back for a second i might have misheard you but did you say anti colonialization and all of that crap or that crowd <laughs> No, I said that crowd. Okay, <laughs> okay, yes. okay, okay, okay. Because uh, that that would have been uh, that that would have been our 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 pullout for the uh, the, uh, the audio right. teaser <laughs> for this interview. Okay, okay. Sorry to disappoint. All right, so they were not in the mood for nuance in the uh, in the days following this. Yes, Bernie, do you want to add on to that? Well, uh, it I think what Isadine is uh, saying triggers uh, a recollection that. It's precisely because of our fear that there would be this polarization, that the first thing I said in the public debate, which was actually not on the 12th, but two days before there was a, there was a first uh, public forum. The first thing I said is, you know, you have to stop thinking about us as categories. If you look at the people that Hamas killed, the vast majority of them were all peaceniks in, his, in the Israeli political system. And when you look at the polls done before the election that was called in 2021 and eventually canceled, but if you look at the polling done then, something like 20, only 28% of Palestinians were Hamas supporters. So that 
the vast majority of Israelis who were killed were in favor of a peace process. The vast majority of Palestinians who are about to be killed by Israeli response were not Hamas supporters at all. And um, I hope that that helped the pressure come out of the balloon a little bit, that people began to see, wait a second, it's not really us versus them. It's a certain style of politics versus a totalitarian, violent style of politics. It's, it's a liberal style of politics against, against terrorism, which is the antithesis of liberal politics. And we can't just look at Palestinians on the one side and Israelis on the other. We have to look at those Israelis who are fighting for a liberal and democratic vision, those Palestinians who are fighting for a liberal democratic vision, and the ways in which extremists, zealots, have polarized our communities and how important it is to never lose sight of the importance of you know, not file, falling victim to exactly what their violence precipitates. One of the really shocking things in those days was the way people were using, for instance, the iconography of the Hamas paragliders, for instance. There was a memification of the whole thing that I guess inevitably happened really quickly. And I think, you know, for those of us who are sort of of a different generation, it was really frustrating, I think, to see the way they kind of just glommed on to these this kind of graphic art of the whole thing. I don't even know a better way of saying it. Did you feel that your students were sort of susceptible to that kind of thing or were they able to kind of step away? Because like from the outside, you know, we're looking at Twitter and we're looking at, you know, images coming off of campuses and just people shooting their mouths off. And we've got like Black Lives Matter Chicago using the the paraglider image, you know, in, in their tweets. What, what was sort of going on in the mix? Like, were you talking to students about these kinds of, of images? I don't think, I don't think our uh, students were particularly susceptible to that kind of thing by the time the, the war began. Uh, I may be wrong, but I think like the vast majority of people, there was a sense of the original attack having been appalling and a tremendous apprehension that the civilian casualties in the Israeli response would be terribly tragic and appalling. And, you know, that's not what we were, that's not what we were for. There was one, I have to say there was one student in class, um, I, I called Isadine after I had this conversation with her, one student in class who was uh, Palestinian, and we had a long conversation towards the end of class, just, just before the end of class. And um, I had always assumed that she found my interventions irritating. But at the end of the class, she wanted to talk to me, and I, we were on the phone for an hour and a half. It was a remarkable conversation. And she said to me, you know, you haven't really persuaded me that things that I believed before I came into class were not true, but my life has become a discussion. And um, it was a moment of grace, I thought. I called Isidine immediately to tell him 
what she had said, and we were both uh, really moved by it. So paragliders and, you know, iconography of, of terrorism, I, I don't think that was really anything any of our students would, would have had a great deal of patience for by the end of class. Do you know what kinds of things she was referring to when she said, I'm not yet convinced that the things I believed before are not true? No, I think she still regarded the Zionist project as uh, a kind of alien project that led to the displacement of uh, her forebears and didn't really see why you know, Palestinians should have to make room for these uh, modernizing Jews. And neither of us ever tried to persuade her that this was justified in Palestinian terms. It was uh, justified with regard to the, uh, the, the Zionist movement's own priorities. So, you know, I did, I must say, by the end of class, she wrote a wonderful uh, exam answer in which she made a very fine distinction between the cultural Zionism of Ahad Ha'am and the political Zionism of Theodore Herzl. And so even though she didn't really consider Zionism to be uh, a a kind of natural uh, thing that she should uh, advocate, she at least understood the complexity of the kind of internal disputes that Zionists had and didn't just see everything as, um, you know, a black and white, you know, alien, uh, alien movement. Yes, which I think is great. I think, personally, I don't want students to be convinced of anything at the end. I don't want them to be, you know, to adopt either this or that view on any of those issues i my hope is only that that they leave the class with an understanding of the complexity of the issues and to be able to distinguish between those layers and more importantly to be able to understand the logic and the rationale of the actors themselves and why they did the things they did whether they think this is justified or legitimate or not is, is their personal kind of citizen position. Mm-hmm. But understanding why people were doing the things and are doing the things they do, that's the analytical part that I think is the antidote to the memeing of the conflict and to the, you know, the iconography of the conflict. And there were, and I think also to answer your question, um, I think there is a distinction to be made between students who, who took the class and the broader students, the broader student community or body who are not necessarily, you know, taking Middle Eastern or government or Jewish studies courses, their understanding of the conflict is as good as anybody else who is just a citizen, right? And the reaction is also similar to that reaction. So some of the students on campus were you know, on social media, doing the things that you referred to. And some of them complained um, to me that, you know, do you approve, you know, of this behavior? This colleague is 
uh, putting this on Facebook and it seems to suggest this and that. The students we had in the class, we had about 20. When Gaza happened, and we had a discussion about what's happening in Gaza in the class between them, they were amazing. We, both of us, were very moved by the degree of maturity with which they handled this terrible uh, development. And I think that that is uh, the refreshing part. That is what makes me keep faith in, you know, the utility of teaching. Yeah. You know, I just, I've said this so often in Isidine's earshot, he must be sick of hearing me say it, but he and I did not ourselves agree on all kinds of issues, the relevance of this fact, the relevance of that, you know, that leader, etc. But what we did share was a profound sense of tragedy and conveyed to the students that this is a tragic conflict. And we both spoke before about our liberal commitments. I think it's important that the students understood that a sense of tragedy presumes the limitations of human beings, that we just really have limited perceptions and we don't always, in fact, rarely understand the implications of our actions. But that's also a fundamental principle of liberal life. And so it's hard to talk about this conflict with a sense of tragedy without conveying, implying to the students the liberalism that we are fighting for in our own communities. And I think the students were picking that up implicitly because of the way we spoke with one another, because of the dialogue we created, uh, the way we accepted each other's insights or at least didn't interrupt each other's sentences, the way we expected our opinions to be informed, we created a dynamic that modeled a liberal community. And within that liberal community, a sense of tragedy is just second nature. So, you know, by the end of the class, we were our own best evidence for the way in which liberal societies deal with national conflict. This is when I come in and say liberal in the European sense, yeah, not the that's American right. sense. Yeah, yeah. I, was, yeah. I was just going to say, what do you mean by liberal? Because that is now a, a, a dirty word um, I'm in, from, in certain I'm from circles. Canada. It's been replaced by... Okay, all right. We're, uh, but like, I, get, I mean, it, this is I'm, exactly what I was going to ask... Yes. I'm from Canada. The, the you know, when I think of liberal, I think of John Locke and the Commonwealth. I I I not the not the British Commonwealth. I mean the Commonwealth that is the right the, that is opposite to civil society. I think of the freedoms that we normally classically identify as liberal. Okay, but I mean, let's get back to the anti-colonial crowd, not crap, crowd. The impression, I think, to a lot of people is that that sort of sensibility it rules the day now among students. 
I'm not even going to say in elite institutions anymore because I think this is everywhere. I, I think even maybe a year ago, I would have said, oh, this is happening, you know, in places like in, in the Ivy League and in these kind of, you know, brand name schools. But I think it's, I think it's pretty clearly everywhere now. And there is this kind of default assumption that, you know, white oppressors are, you know, going to be looked at in this way and everybody else is oppressed by these oppressors. I mean, I'm curious, you two have been teaching for a long time. I'm I'm really interested in your thoughts about sort of how and when this emerged. But I guess yeah, before we get to that, you know, yeah, let's let's go back to, you know, you're talking about liberalism in one sense, but Isadine, do you have students raising their hands and saying, you know, but we don't like liberalism anymore. We're progressives. We yes, we do. We do have that that reaction, but the way I personally deal with this is the same way I deal with differences between, let's say, pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian students. I'm not trying to convince the progressive student to become more mainstream, as much as I'm not trying to convince the conservative student to embrace liberalism in the American sense. That's not my business. It's not my role, and it's not my goal and it's a waste of time because there will always be, you know, those forces in society that create this type of ideologies are not things that you and I can control by saying this or not saying it. Those are bigger dynamics in society. So my role as a teacher in a classroom is to, one, offer safe space for all of these types in order for them to be able to learn safely and to question their own views and other views safely. That's what universities are for. So I am more interested in combating, in pushing political correctness away so that students can ask difficult and problematic questions in the classroom because this is the place of learning. And this ability to critically review all ideas and views is what higher education is about in my view. So instead of trying to kind of re-educate students into a doctrine, which I think would be a betrayal of our task, I try to get them to be able to question and learn and grow intellectually in the classroom. And to point to, for example, the question of colonial and anti-colonial and post-colonial, I, you know, I teach other courses on Middle East. And usually in the introductory course on Middle East politics, at the very beginning, we talk about, you know, the making of the modern Middle East, and then the question of colonialism comes up. And you immediately see the reactions of students and those who keep emphasizing it's colonial, it's colonial, it's colonialism. And for those, I offer the opposite view. Like, think about that. Think about the fact that colonialism ended about 100 years ago. Think about... If it's only colonialism, how would you explain that other countries that were not colonized ended up actually in a worse situation than those who were colonized? And what are the answers you have for this? And those who dismiss colonialism altogether, I also invite them to think of the lasting impact and structural impact of colonialism and so on and so forth. And again, I'm not trying to duck the question. I can chew your ear off about my personal views on this and that. But it really doesn't matter. As a teacher, it's not my personal views that count. It's my ability to 
get this out of the students and get them to ask and read and question. And in my view, and I'll stop here, the most important thing is to learn to get from the view that you reject to get the valid part out of it. There is no view that's 100% kind of um, wrong. There must be some validity to it. If you're progressive and you don't like Bernard Lewis because he's Orientalist, Bernard Lewis is a serious scholar who spent his life studying things. He probably has things that he got wrong, but he must have, have this text must have something that is useful to you. What would it be? Give this text the best interpretation possible. What would you get out of it? Because, in fact, what you get out of this opposed view that you so vehemently reject, what you keep is, what is, is a winning for you. It's something that you're going to keep. It will make your views better. That is what I want students to be able to do, not change their views. And look, in the, in the case of this course, colonial is not just an epithet. It's not just a simplified version of white power. It actually, there really was a colonial presence in Palestine. So it's up to us to look at it. And we did. One of the first things our students learn is that at the time of the Balfour Declaration, there really wasn't a single person in the area that was then called, eventually became called Palestine under the British. It wasn't called Palestine before that. There wasn't anyone who thought that political rights could be exercised outside the precincts of some empire. In fact, the first Palestinian who famously argued for a Palestinian national identity took us back to the ways in which the British failed to live up to a promise that was made to the Hashemite king so that, in effect, what they were saying is that the colonial power at the time let us down. And if they had not let us down, they would have then engendered our politics. So how is that an anti-colonial idea? I mean, it's ironic, of course, because what they're saying is the colonizers, i.e. the British, had favored the Jews or the Zionist movement over the Palestinian inhabitants, and they should have chosen us. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of strange irony. At the same time, the Zionist movement saw what happened in South Africa, saw that they could never create a significant new Hebrew cultural life if they were just going to be overseers of Arab labor. They tried that between 1880 and 1900, and it didn't work in the so-called Rothschild settlements, which was under the Ottoman Empire. And so the labor Zionists who actually built the country 
saw themselves as an anti-colonial movement. That is to say, they thought that they were going to not be representative of some hinterland world that was going to turn Palestinians into hewers of, word, of, of, hewers of wood and carriers of water, as Lenin put it, but, but rather do their own work, create their own independent colonies that were economically independent and would never exploit, they use that term, they would never exploit Arab workers. But what they were actually wound up doing then, double irony, they wound up displacing Palestinian peasants. So if we're going to use the word colonial or colonialism in the context of the Arab-Israeli conflict, let's really look at it. Let's really look at what the word colonial means instead of just defaulting to this idea that, oh, you know, it's white power all the way down. And this is just another example of it. By the way, uh, I saw something that's really funny. I just can't resist this. You know, Brett Stevens last week or week and a half ago had a column in which he said that anti-Semitism is growing and growing. Look, 67% of young people between the age of 18 and 24 think of Jews as oppressors. And I went back to I went back to that poll and I said, well, wait a second, that could that possibly be true? Well, it turns out that 77% of that same group saw white people as oppressors. So for like 9% of those people, 10% of those people, Jews don't qualify as white. <laughs> we got we got like a pass, you know. <laughs> but the identity <sighs> politics behind that original poll is itself so preposterous that you know we can't possibly yank that kind of thing into our classroom. So sorry, is it? Go go ahead. No, it's just also the same approach that Bernie is talking about uh, to colonialism applies to the question of decolonize when people say we need to decolonize this and decolonize that then what does that mean and again it's pushing it's pushing students to think and answer questions when you say decolonize palestine what what does that actually mean what does that mean as far as the jews are concerned what do you have in mind so spell it out and then sometimes sometimes actually often people say things without thinking of the consequences as so and without translating them, they become memes, as you said earlier. And sometimes it's just when you push them to think of the consequences, they begin to understand the extent of what they're saying. And the decolonization is one of those terms. Is Are we talking about transfer of Jews out of Palestine? Would that be the, your decolonization? Or what? Or are we talking about breaking inequalities and promoting equality so that the colonial relationship that you're worried about ceases to exist. And when you think in those terms, and when you think multiplicity of actors, it ceases to be white oppressors, colored oppressed, or this group against that group. It's unpacking those groups is important. And I think for someone like me who has the privilege of being non-white, when I say that, it also confuses students in a good way because the expectation is, you know, 
if you're in this category, you have to repeat those kind of. Yeah. I want to ask you about what we're seeing at places like Columbia, Harvard also, but let, let's let's pause on Columbia for a second because, I mean, that's a place, there have always been a number of high-profile professors in Middle Eastern studies. Right now, we still have professors like Joseph Massad, who's a you know, Jordanian academic, who's, I think he's in the, you know, modern Arab politics, as I think his department. There's Hamid Dashabi in, in Comp Lit, I think, Iranian studies. And, you know, the word on the street at Columbia is that there's a lot of anti-Semitism in these classes. There's a lot of anti-Semitism that's coming out of these professors. I mean, this is something that people have been talking about, Jewish students have been talking about for a couple, you know, at least a decade or more at, at Columbia. I'm wondering what you think about that. Is that is it overblown? Is it is it underblown? Why have these professors been allowed to teach like this if, in fact, that is how they're teaching? What do you make of this? Isidine, I think that's for you. I pass. I am not really, I am not familiar with Colombia, I have to say. I've never, you know, studied there. I've never given a talk there. I haven't met with, um, other than Rashid Khalidi, uh, the others I, I don't know. I don't know their teaching or courses. I read some of the stuff uh, they wrote and found some of it useful and found some of it appalling. But I really can't answer your question with any knowledge, though. What I can say is more general and broad things, like I think teaching Middle East in America has always been a challenge. There is a lot of self-censorship. And people are worried to offend this or offend that, uh, or to be perceived as this or perceived as that. That's one problem, and I think it takes it. It needs a lot of courage and leadership from universities to create that safe space, also for faculty, for academic freedoms. But at the same time, I want to say that I'm much more interested in academic freedoms than I'm interested in freedom of speech on campuses. And there is a difference between those two. Academic freedom is what I refer to, is we have a classroom and I want my students to be able to question everything they want to question because it's happening in their mind. And if we just leave it to happen in their mind and we don't allow them to voice it and to give smart and intelligent and useful answers to those questions and help them find answers for them, we would be letting them down. Those are this is how knowledge and understanding progresses is through in a context of freedom. And that's an that's what we mean by academic freedom. This for me doesn't include having a, a sign and standing in front of a classroom and shouting this or that. Those freedom of expression issues are social issues. They're not academic issues. So and again I don't think Professors are supposed to be advocates of this or that. Professors are supposed to help students learn. We are learners. We're senior learners working with junior learners. All of us learn. That's our job. It's not because I have a PhD and I got an appointment in an Ivy League university that I have a right to be an advocate of this and I have because I have a, a louder voice. That has, doesn't make sense to me. Those political positions taken by faculty are personal choices. Bernie and I happen to write in newspapers. He writes for The New Yorker. I wrote for The Washington Post. This is where we express our personal views. 
And readers can do whatever they want with those views. It has nothing to do with us being professors. So those distinctions are important for me. Academic freedoms, not freedom of expression. Our job as professors come before and above this advocacy business. Yeah, I, I, I just want to endorse that as strongly as I possibly can. They, you know, they say breaks help you go fast. Well, restraints help you be free. The restraints that Isadine and I were talking about before in the way in which we approached our students seem to me fundamental to academic freedom. The idea that you can force your students to adopt some kind of ideological position and that you have a right to do that because you're an academic exercising freedom, I think is a, is a real debasing of the, of the principle of academic freedom. Academic freedom presupposes letting students speak, never dismissing a person's opinion because they come from some zip code or because they have some kind of pedigree, that's not academic freedom. That's its opposite. You have the norms of debate that are fundamental to the pedagogy that Isadine was describing. The norms of debate are very precious, and they, they are a stepping stone to academic freedom. If you in any way violate those norms of debate, it has no place on a campus. Now, is that in itself a commitment to a certain kind of politics? Well, there I plead guilty in the way I did before. I think there is something in committing to those norms of debate, which are fundamental to a liberal civilization. I mean, liberal in the classical Canadian sense, not in you know, uh, the squad sense. But once you commit to those norms of debate, it has all kinds of implications for your political commitments. But what is a university if not a tribute to that commonwealth, to that ideal of a liberal commonwealth? It's not an accident that Jefferson retired and created the University of Virginia. I mean, that's the whole point of a modern university. It's to valorize these ideals and to fight for them with, within the rubric of a national life in which um, it's, you know, tribalisms of all kinds will try to crush them. Do you think these values are eroding? Every generation erodes them. They, they don't appeal to you. They don't appeal to common sense. Every little child is this adorable little fascist. Every little child is, you know, wants to be accepted by the family, wants to be, you know, wants to have a, a, a hero to worship, wants to prove their value to some kind of tribe or some kind of family. And the what, you know, what is fascism if not the projection of family onto society as a whole? Society is not a, you know, the, the civil society is not a family. For God's sake, it is a world of individuals who are figuring out how to accept the, their own limitations and deal with a way of settling in inescapable disputes nonviolently. That's what human beings are. And, we, you know, 
or this is what liberal commonwealths assume that human beings are. And we have to fight for them in every generation because we come out of these primordial institutions like family life and so on. And it's that was the first hour of my conversation with Bernard Avishai and Izzedine Fischier. Together, they teach the class The Politics of Israel and Palestine at Dartmouth College. To hear the rest of the interview, become a paying subscriber to The Unspeakable at megandom.substack.com. That is how it's going to be from now on, so you might as well do it now. And I've got some new writing up as well. In the meantime, I will tell you that Bernard Avishai is a visiting professor of government at Dartmouth and also an adjunct professor of business at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He's written many books, including The Tragedy of Zionism, He writes regularly for The New Yorker and has a cover story in the new issue of Harper's Magazine. Isidine Fischier is a visiting professor at Dartmouth, where he teaches Middle East politics and cultures. He's been a professor at the American University in Cairo and has a long career in Egyptian diplomacy. He's also a novelist. We didn't even get to that and a contributing columnist at The Washington Post. Again, you should really listen to the entire interview. So go to megandom.substack.com to do that, to learn about the unspeakeasy and our upcoming retreats in many cities all over America this year. Go to theunspeakeasy.com. In the meantime, I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you then. 